studying Isaiah as we have faithfully and attentively listened to the teachings of the prophet Isaiah, studying Isaiah has made us experience a whole gamut of emotions. We felt frustrated and maybe even angry at Israel's stubborn sinfulness. I don't know, did you ever find yourself thinking about it, the people of Israel? Why and how are you so dumb? Frustration, anger. But surely at times we also felt chastened, rebuked, because... Israel and we, we are so alike. And it seems to me maybe the only difference between Israel and us is that Israel's sins were grander in scale and in public. Our sins, they are mostly uh, hidden and unseen, but they share the same quality. And certainly as we have studied the book of Isaiah, we have felt chastened. We have felt fear. We were afraid. How? How can a defiled people endure God's unrelenting holiness? And then we felt unspeakable relief because we saw that God has provided for us a substitute he sent his servant, the spotless Lamb of God, who died and bore upon his shoulders our sins, received the curse and the wrath that you and I deserve, and in our place and instead of us offered up to God the perfect worship and obedience. And because of the perfect substitute, the servant of the Lord, we felt unspeakable joy. And we also felt love, love well up in our hearts for the God of grace. And so we felt hope. Because if we have seen anything, we saw that God's grace is bigger than our failures. And as we approach the end of Isaiah, it seems to me that is precisely what the prophet is focusing on. On. He is really showing us with clarity that God's grace is bigger than our failures. And so the first thing the prophet teaches us to see is Israel and the world. Israel and the world. And there is a reason for this. Because when the world around us is complex and when life is hard, we need to see that God is bigger. That's what we need to see. And when our dreams and hopes have been frustrated and dashed, we need to see that God, God has written us into his better story. And for that reason, Isaiah juxtaposes or puts side by side, on the one hand, Israel's failings, and on the other hand, God's triumph, all to show us 
that God is bigger than our trouble. And this chapter starts out by uh, with the Lord saying, I was ready to be sought by those who did not seek me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. Now, these words can be a little bit confusing, but thanks be to God, uh, the Apostle Paul explains to us exactly what these words mean because uh, in Romans chapter 10, now if you remember, Romans chapters 9 through 11 is where Paul is dealing with the very uh, important question of how is it that God's Old Testament people, Israel, fell away from God while the Gentiles have been brought into God's kingdom. And in those three uh, chapters, Romans chapters 9 through 11, Paul explores at length God's gracious purpose. And Paul actually quotes this verse from Isaiah chapter 65 and Romans chapter 10 verse 20 in order to prove uh, or to explain God's purpose behind Israel God's Old Testament people falling away from God while the Gentiles have been brought in. And so in Romans chapter 10, verse 20, Paul says, Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. That is to say, the Gentiles, you know, the the ancient Israelites, they divided the world simply in two ways. There were the Jews, Israelites, the children of Abraham, and the rest of mankind, they were the Gentiles. Children of Abraham are God's covenant people, and the Gentiles, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what color uh, your skin is, where you live, all that matters whether you are the children of Abraham or not. And the Gentiles, as far as they were concerned, were the lost, lost cause, lost people. But then here, Paul, quoting Isaiah, is saying that Gentiles have come to find salvation in the God of Israel because they put their faith in the son of David. But sadly, the people of Israel did not. And so Paul continues in Romans chapter 10, verse 21, He says, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So if you see what's happening in Romans chapter 10, Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1, the passage that we read this morning. He quotes that first verse and applies that to the gracious inclusion of Gentiles into God's covenant. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 65, verse 2 and following and applies them to Israel's self-imposed exile from the same covenant. And then Paul makes this stunning statement in Romans chapter 11, verse 11, thinking about this whole dynamic of how God's Old Testament people Uh, imposed upon themselves an exile, and they chose to be strangers to God's covenant, but how the Gentiles 
were brought into God's kingdom. And Paul says, so I ask, did they stumble, did Israel stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And the amazing and the mysterious thing that, God, that Paul is unpacking for us is that Israel's spiritual failures became the very occasion and the means through which salvation came to the Gentiles. And so this is what happened. Israel devised for itself a tragedy and scorned the blessings and the privileges of being God's covenant people. But God turned that story of tragedy into a better story. And so that the Gentiles eagerly received what Israel rejected. And those who had neither knowledge nor claim to God became the heirs of the covenant. So that's a very particular and very profound way we witness the tragedy of Israel being used in God's sovereign and gracious purpose to bring something beautiful. So that's the first thing we see, Israel and the world. And the second thing that we learn is that law fails, but grace prevails. Now, once again, the Gentiles had no interest in righteousness. They had no knowledge of God. Yet, they were given that righteousness, the gift that they did not seek, God gave it to them as a free gift. Israel, on the other hand, they wanted righteousness badly, but they did not attain it. And not only so, God used Israel's failure to attain to, uh, to righteousness. God used that as the very means of giving the Gentiles the righteousness that they did not seek. Why? You see, what happened was that Israel put so much faith not in God, but in their own works. And that is why here in Isaiah chapter 65, Isaiah systematically dismantles their vaunted righteousness. Everything that they boasted about, Isaiah is uncovering and showing them was no righteousness at all. So in verse 2, the Lord calls them a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. That already sets up the, the issue. These people, rather than following what God has revealed to them, they chose to follow their own devices. They chose to go their own way. And they chose a way that is contrary to God's commandments. Now, do you remember the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. 
And that phrase before me appears in this passage. When the Lord calls them a people who provoke me to my face, and that's the same phrase right there, before me, continually. In other words, the Lord commanded in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, but Israel chose to go their own way and worshiped other gods and provoked God to his face. And do you remember the second commandment? You shall not make images to worship God. And the second commandment deals with proper worship. Um, you know, this day and age, it seems to me that the people think that as long as you're being sincere, you can do anything to worship God. Um, not so. Worship has to be according to God's will and His commandments. And there is a reason why the Lord commanded in the second commandment, you shall not make any images to worship me. Because Israel, as God's people, were supposed to worship God according to his ways and his will. But notice verse 3. We read here that they sacrificed in gardens and they made offerings on bricks. Uh, God's people were not allowed to offer sacrifices on the altar that was formed by human tools. Rather, they were supposed to collect stones untouched by human labors and, and tools. And the reason being, as we have learned recently in Isaiah, the best that we do, because we are sinners, the best of our labors are infected and, and stained by our sin. And the sacrifice that makes atonement for us cannot rest upon the foundation of man's sinful labors. God will provide the altar upon which the sacrifices are made to make atonement for our sins. And that is the reason why the Old Testament forbade God's people from wielding tools on altar, but rather to simply collect stones and offer sacrifices upon it. But what Israel did is that they not only offered uh, sacrifices wherever they chose, but they did it upon bricks. And again, we might think, what's the big deal? The big deal is that they chose to go their own ways and ignore God's word. Uh, do you remember the third commandment? You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. And broadly, that, that's a commandment that concerns uh, pledging of our allegiance to the name of the Lord only. Uh, the Lord's name is holy, and we bind ourselves to that holy name. We pledge our allegiance only to him. But verse 4, they were sitting in tombs, and they spent the night in secret places. Uh, that's referring to the fact that people of Israel were looking to the dead for spiritual guidance. Um, you know, people still do that today, don't they? They hold seances, Ouija board, and things of that nature. They were doing that. Do you remember the fourth commandment? You shall keep the Lord's day Sabbath holy. And that commandment really deals with the holy and the common. But notice verse 4, they eat pig's flesh. And by the way, I heard... Um, a well-known prosperity preacher telling his congregation that they should not be eating pork. 
the New Testament, do you remember when Peter sees the vision uh, before he is sent to the house of Cornelius? God sends down in a sheet of all sorts of unclean creatures, and he commands Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, no way. You know, I'm too holy for what you command. <laughs> Imagine the audacity to tell God, I'm holier than your command. And the Lord says, what I have made clean, do not call unclean. And so it was during the Old Testament times that God's law was very strict. And there were strict laws about what people could eat and not eat. There were even commands about what kind of clothes to wear, what kind of materials the clothes were made out of. And the point being is this, that God's people were supposed to be set apart to God so that in every aspect of their lives, they were supposed to think about God and honor God. Before you have your meal, you were supposed to think about God, honor Him with your food. When you got dressed, you were supposed to think about God and, and honor Him. And that's really broadly the, the point of God's very strict laws, teaching His people, I have redeemed you. You are mine. I have set you apart for my glory. And you... You must make me the center of your life in everything that you do. But, and that is to say, there's nothing that, that prevents the New Testament believers from enjoying uh, pork. But under the Old Testament economy, they were forbidden. And knowing that they transgressed against it, and they had the audacity to, sell, uh, to, uh, to say to people, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. You see, Israel lived by its own ideas of holiness, not according to the revelation that they had received from the Lord. And that is the reason why they failed to attain righteousness. And that is the reason why the Lord says in verse 6, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. Spiritual failure is both self-willed and self-imposed. And that's what Paul makes clear in Romans chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. He says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. That is to say, spiritual failure is self-willed and self-imposed. Spiritual failure starts by going against what God has revealed, and it ends up being at odds with God. But spiritual success, spiritual success begins when we listen to God. When we listen to God and learn from Him when He tells us that we have nothing to offer Him. That we, we must, and that we can only receive that gift by faith. That is why, loved ones, 
your past, which was lived poorly and badly, and if you have made a mess of your life, that is not an impediment. That is not a hindrance. That is not an obstacle to salvation. If your past failures, they bring you to God with empty hands to receive grace. And here is that wonderful message. No matter what you have done in your past, no matter how badly you have failed spiritually or otherwise, no matter how poorly you have lived, none of that will be an impediment or obstacle to you coming to the God of grace and receiving him as your loving father and enjoying rich, meaningful relationship with God so long as your failures and your past bring you to God with empty hands. But if you think you have lived well, if you think you've been successful in your spiritual life so that you have so much to offer God and you begin to think, of course God has to accept me. Hasn't he seen what I have done? Of course. And maybe you maybe even begin to think, God is really lucky to have me. I've been so faithful. I've been so committed. You know, it's not the spiritual failures that will prove to be impediment, but what you think are your spiritual accomplishments that will prove to be your undoing. So that is the second thing. We saw Israel and the world, and then law fails and grace prevails. And thirdly and finally, failure and future, failure and future. And the question to ask here is, is spiritual failure final? Is spiritual failure final? Can those who have resisted God and strayed far from Him come back? Actually, that is the very hope that Paul expresses in Romans chapter 11, verse 15. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And if you remember, do you remember how Paul ends Romans 11 with, with the heartfelt and glorious praise? He is grieving as a fellow Israelite that so many of his fellow countrymen have strayed from God, have resisted God, but he looks forward to a beautiful future when his people will be brought back to the Lord. And he imagines and he realizes that the devastating consequence of resisting and straying from God need not decide your eternity. And that is why we read in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 8, the Lord says, So I will do for my servants' sake and not destroy them all. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. Now, back in chapter 33, Isaiah 33, Sharon 
uh, is like a desert, we read. It's a place that typifies, uh, made visual God's wrath and punishment for sin, that Sharon had become a, a barren wilderness. But that Sharon, the Lord says, will become a pasture for flocks. And then he talks about the valley of Achor. And if you remember, that's from Joshua chapter 7. When Israelites, when they first entered the promised land, they were commanded to offer all of the, the spoils of war to the Lord in total dedication. One of the men kept some for himself out of greed and received upon him and his family God's judgment and wrath. And the place where they were buried is called the Valley of Achor. And that's a place that symbolizes something that began so well but ended poorly through sin. But God here says that God can renew even that and make that Valley of Achor a place of hope. That is to say, once again, we read, didn't we, from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 earlier, that all the things that Israel experienced over generations and ages, they are given to us to aid us, to help us. And everything that they experience, they teach us that there is hope after failure when we come to the God of grace. Because God, he is eager to restore you. And he offers you righteousness. And that righteousness will not cost you anything. Because God has already paid that price through the death and through the obedience of his son, Jesus Christ. And that righteousness is yours for asking. You see, God, this is the God who said, he, he held out his hands to the people who were not seeking him. And he said, here I am. Here I am. Doesn't that tell us something about God's heart? His eagerness to save people. His readiness to restore people. And so notice, loved ones, that, that God desires for you a future of grace and of hope, and that they are yours in Jesus Christ. And so it may be. Um, Perhaps life has not worked out as you had hoped. Now, if you're newlyweds, freshly back from your honeymoon, life is wonderful. You live long enough, you experience that, don't you? The things that you have wanted, your hopes and dreams, the life that you have wanted for yourself, you know, they don't all work out. You suffer failures, you suffer setbacks. Sometimes those setbacks and failures are spiritual in nature. Or sometimes they're of a different kind. But life is hard and the world is complex and we are often left wounded and hopeless. So hear this, loved ones. 
that God, God is bigger than your troubles. Even when your design for your life hasn't worked out, and you know, they often don't, even then, God has written you into his better story. Have you failed? Have you stumbled? There is grace for you. There is a redemption for you. And God welcomes you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, we thank you. We humbly acknowledge that that we have nothing to offer you. All of our righteous deeds are as polluted garments. And we have no accomplishments, no worth, no merit by which we can claim your love and your grace. So we simply claim and receive freely the love that you pour out through your son, Jesus Christ, and we pray. Oh, Lord, be with us when in life's many hardships we lose heart, we are wounded, we live with shame and regret, and we lose hope. Help us to remember that so long as we turn to you, as long as you are our God and guide, there is a future, there is grace, and there is hope. So strengthen us, be with us, and remind us of your faithfulness. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.